And by overcome, let me mean, I don't mean just in some future, you know, one day. It involves that. But this overcoming includes both a prospering today and a prevailing one day. Are you with me? So the big picture of Exodus, the big picture of the Pentateuch, in a sense, is this idea that though oppressed and outnumbered, we can overcome. Overcoming in the sense of prospering today, doing okay, keep staying intact, keeping our marriage, our family, our community intact, and even flourishing and thriving in the midst of that community, although we are oppressed from outside, though we are outnumbered, though we are, we are excluded, though we are uh, uh, um, relativized, marginalized, though oppressed and outnumbered, we can overcome. And of course the question is, how? How? How is that going to happen? How in the world are these Israelites in Egypt going to overcome? Will it be through political empowerment? Will it be through great jobs? Will it be through key positions in our culture? Will it be through you know, good salaries? And all the things that we could go on and on and list the things that the world places hope and the, the world looks at. I mean, let, me, let me summarize with one word that is so, so typical and, or so frequent in discourse today, in social and political discourse today. That you can only come oppression, when you're outnumbered, you can only come, overcome oppression if you have one thing. What is it? Privilege. You need privilege. And the story of Exodus pushes back against that just 100-fold. It says there is one, there is only one whom we need to have on our side to overcome. So again, Christian, Exodus speaks, and they're tired tired of the Pentateuch, but especially Exodus speaks of this, 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 um, this contention, this argument, this suggestion that though oppressed and outnumbered, we, God is God's people, can overcome. Prospering today, prevailing tomorrow. How? Not through political empowerment, not through all manner of things that we might look to, but through the power of God, the promises that he has made. Okay, let me just, before we jump in here, let me just qualify. So, again, the big picture is what? The Bible is written absolutely for us, but not immediately to us. And so we have to say, okay, to whom was it originally written? And then, and then from there, so people go, okay, how does that apply to me? Okay, so that's, that's, what we just, that's what we just did. Now I want to ask the question, why wasn't it, or why isn't, why isn't it the Bible written directly to us? I mean, wouldn't it be great if like a prophet or a, an apostle just showed up once every generation, wrote something new that was direct, I mean, immediately written to Ameri- you know, the church in America, the church in Europe, the church wherever. And it was this immediate word straight to us. We think, oh man, this is like right to me. Wouldn't that be better? Well, let me give you, let me give you an example. Every, what, six or eight weeks or so here at Good Shepherd, we do what's called, we do what's called a children's service. And I have this theory that many of the adults get more out of the children's service and the children's sermon than they do most of their sermons. 
And there's a reason for that. One is it's a little more accessible and even whatever. But there's another reason too. That when you are overhearing something, when you overhear something, listen to this, we are more open to hearing it. When we overhear, we are more open, we more openly hear. Are you with me? And so I, I can't tell you, so I'll be talking to the kids and the parents, the parents are listening and they're overhearing and it's not directly at them. There's no, there's no defensive, there's no, the walls aren't up, right? Well, what's he going to say to me now? You know, you know, it's simply overhearing. Oh, it's not about me, it's not to me. And they're overhearing and it's that overhearing that actually opens our hearts, opens our ears. And that's exactly what we have in the Bible. You have discourse from God to his people and you and I, 2,000 plus years later, are overhearing. And it's the overhearing that invites application. It's like, whoa, I, I kind of needed to hear that. <laughs> All right? How many times on a, on a children's scripture, you're like, wow, that's a, little, that's a little too close to home. Right? I thought it was for the kids. Right? Of course, there's a lot there that I'm planting in there in those children's services that is for you. Right? But it's indirect. And that's, that's, that is exactly how Scripture works. When we overhear, we more openly hear. Listen to this. We can see both ourself and our society more accurately, much like world travelers. Think about it. Those of you who travel, those of you who've lived in different cultures, when you go, you go and you live in a different culture, then you come back to your home culture, you can begin to see it in radically different ways. In fact, that's often the story of some of the most influential theologians of the last hundred years or so were people who actually were missionaries uh, in, say, from America or missionaries from, say, England. And they went and lived in somewhere else, China, India, went, went somewhere, and they came back after 20, 30, 40 years. And they experienced that reverse culture shock of, wow, now I see America for America. I see it for all its strengths, but boy, do I see the weaknesses. And that is the same thing when you dedicate yourself to studying God's word, to entering into an ancient culture. Whether it's the ancient the culture of Egypt, the culture of, of Palestine, the culture of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And you immerse yourself in that and in, this, in, in, the, in the world of that time and in the text that we have in front of us, you come back like a world traveler. You come back as someone who can like see the structures and institutions. You know, you know what? There's something great about America, and there's something really, really bad about America. There's something great about who I am as a person. There's something really bad about who I am as a person. Okay, so but that's just such a, a fundamental idea. So, okay, so with that idea, again, the Bible is written absolutely for us, but not immediately to us. And again, the book of Exodus will want to say again and again, though oppressed and outnumbered, we can overcome. So now let's just very briefly, I want to just walk us through Exodus. I want to walk at three simple sections of the book of Exodus before chapter 1. Okay, the first thing that I want you to see, the first 18 chapters are about divine rescue. The first 18 chapters. You don't have to flip through there, but I just want you to see these. As you, as you guys are reading through Exodus on your own, Throughout this, this fall, I would encourage you to read the book again and again and again. And these first 18 chapters are all about God's rescue. 
They're all about God rescuing his people. There's, only, there's no other way to explain how the Israelites get out of Egypt other than divine intervention, displaying God's power and the fact that he is keeping his promises to the patriarchs who come before him. In fact, just very briefly, let me just turn, turn to the left to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15, if, again, if you're following along in uh, the Pew Bible, that's um, it's on page 12 of your Pew Bible. On page um, uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, God is making a covenant with Abraham, or Abraham, still Abram here. Again, it's 15, chapter 15, verse 13. And he says, look at what he says here. This is so powerful. This is amazing. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers, that is, foreigners, in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Isn't that amazing? So you have this promise that Abraham already in around 2000 BC that is being fulfilled here now in these first 18 chapters. So the first third, the first chunk, if you will, of Exodus is this notion of divine rescue. And then you move from divine rescue, beginning in chapter 19, to a divine relationship. Look in, look in, look in Exodus 19. The very beginning of the chapter there. So powerful. It's so beautiful. I love this. Listen to this. Uh, so they, they, they arrive. They leave Exodus. They arrive. They travel through the wilderness. They arrive at Mount Sinai, as we'll see. And then on page 63, we see this in verse 4. God is speaking to all of God, to, to, the, to the Israelites, to be speaking directly to Moses. And he says this, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. It's not the plagues, all that's the, all the devastation. How I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, there's the relationship. Then, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Isn't that amazing. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So, and then what happens in 19 through 24, you have a, a, this, this unfolding, this establishing of a relationship along with various rules and regulations for life that give Israel a unique role in the world. They are to be a kingdom and priests. They are to be a holy nation. They are to, be, to have this role of mediators of God's grace to the world. So again, the first section of Exodus is a rescue but it's a rescue in order that there might be a relationship. That there might be a role that is assumed by God's people in the world. It's not just, okay, we're rescued, whew, now I can do whatever I want to. It's a rescue that leads to a relationship. And then that, so that's chapters 19 through 24. And then the rest of the book, 25 through 40, is devoted to God's residence. So you have divine rescue, divine relationship, and then divine residence. And 20, chapters 25 through 40 can be some hard reading if you don't really know what's going on. It's just all of this, this entire description of the building of the tabernacle. But it's basically about, about God saying, listen, I want to dwell among you. I want to be with you. I didn't just rescue you and now I'm, I'm going to go back and do my own thing. I'm rescuing you to establish a relationship with you 
that I can then reside with you. And what's so amazing about this, and get this, guys, the creator, according to the Pentateuch, the creator of all things, wants to dwell in a desert with a bunch of former slaves. He wants to be among them. He wants to share a tent with them. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Turn to Exodus 29. And you see these words for yourself. Exodus 29, beginning in verse 45. This is on page 73. Again, speaking of the, cre- of the making of the tent of the, ta- uh, the, tent of the, of the tabernacle, it's speaking here in chapter 29 of the, of the consecration of the priests who will mediate between God and, and Israel. And he says this, verse, we'll start in verse 44. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron, uh, Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And here's the climax. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. Why? So that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So divine rescue leads to a divine relationship that then leads to the building of a divine residence. Why? Because God wants to dwell with them. And the, qu- the key question, the, the burning question is this. Does Israel want to dwell with him? Do you and I, are we just interested in deliverance? Are we just interested in rescue? Or do we want a relationship? A relationship that leads to a unique role in the world. That leads to him always residing by my side. That's the story of Exodus. That's the big picture. Rescue. Relationship. Residence. And what's so beautiful about that last section of Exodus is if you're an artist, you'll love the last section of Exodus. If you can appreciate beauty, if you can appreciate symbolism and sacrament, if you, if you can appreciate just the, the idea of something representing something else, you will love that section because there's so much beauty to it. So with that, let's just turn to Exodus chapter 1, just briefly walk through it. It won't take too long. Exodus chapter 1, and we'll just, oh, this opening story is, is, uh, is a beautiful one. Uh, Exodus 1 asks, where is life found? Where is abundant life found? Where is real life and flourishing found? And the answer is that it's among the people of promise. It's among a very unpromising people of promise. It speaks, Exodus 1 speaks of a life that is given to the people of God, a life that endures oppression and that defies tyranny. A life that endures oppression and defies tyranny. Let me just give you some historical background Listen to this. So we don't exactly know when the Exodus event happened. There's some just a lot of ways it's just shrouded in the sands of, of, of time or just hidden in some ways. I mean, some, some historians will speculate somewhere in the 15th century, others in the 13th century B.C. We just don't really know for sure. And there are some different, various plausible theories, but all of them have problems. And that's very typical of historical reconstruction. It's just messy. It's not doesn't cast doubt on it. It's just, in fact, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's, so, it's so common uh, among historians that there's always going to be just sort of these things that don't make sense, that it actually lends itself a certain credibility. But let's just say that it happened in the, 1500, you know, the 15th century B.C. If so, by then, Egypt 
was already millennia old. Isn't that amazing? In fact, the great pyramids of Giza, everyone's seen the pyramids of Giza like on the internet or on TV or something like that. The great pyramids by the 15th century were already a thousand years old. Think about that. We can't, as Americans, we can begin to touch that. We go to, we go to Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bill and I'm like, that's so old, <laughs> right? right? Or we go, I mean, I can remember going to England and we were in England and we went to um, um, the uh, uh, Ely Cathedral and it was built in like the 1100s or the 11th, 12th century. And you're like, wow, man, it's a thousand years old. Nothing, nothing compared to the Egyptian culture, even by the time of the Exodus. Egypt had been the center of the ancient Near Eastern political and cultural life for 2,500 years by the time of the Exodus. In fact, much, much later, I mean, we're talking. Uh, a thousand years later, Herodotus would visit Egypt. This is from 400 BC, and he would write these words. It has more it that is Egypt has more wonders in it than any other country in the world, and more works that are beyond description than anywhere else. And again, uh, the, uh, the the pyramids themselves were were a, were an you know, ancient wonder of the world, and they stood. Um, they stood as the tallest man-made structure for almost 4,000 years. Think about that. So you build something, 4,000 years later, it's still the tallest man-made structure. So, and we'll see this, that, that we'll, we'll see in chapter 1 here, that, they, that the Egyptians loved to build stuff. They were just these consummate builders. And not only that, but they were a people of great wisdom. Look in Acts 7, when Stephen describes Moses, he speaks of him as being trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That there's, there's tremendous learning. There's tremendous art going on here. There's tremendous architecture. This is an advanced and highly capable culture, a respected culture. This is, Egypt is one, if not the superpower of the time when all of this begins to go down. So that we want to have some real respect, real sense of awe, that there is a lot of good things happening in Egypt when all of this stuff begins to go down. So let's walk through these verses here. What we see here are a, uh, these verses are masterfully, masterfully crafted, crafted. We see a, um, it opens, the, Exodus 1 opens with a listing of, of, of the names of the sons of, uh, of, of Jacob. So you have Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob marries two wives and has two maidservants, and through them has 12 sons. And so we read in verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who went, to, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And it lists the, uh, lists the names of the sons. Now, if you were an original listener, again, you're on the doorstep of, of, of the land of Canaan, and, you, and he reads, well, why would he bother mentioning all these names? Because each of these names of these men become the names of entire tribes. And so you're listening, and you hear your tribe called out. Oh, yeah, Asher. Oh, yeah, Gad. That's me, yeah. So I, you, you, there's this immediate point of connection that, that these are your ancestors. These are direct forebears. These are the people with whom you identify. That's who I am. And so, and so the story begins by this identification. Yeah, that's us. And even as they're listening, all the various tribes, this tribe, that tribe, you know, one, two, three, four, eight, nine, ten, eleven... There's only 11 names. And why is that? 
Well, look in verse 5. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Oh, right? You know why Joseph was already in Egypt, right? Hey, those are our trust, my tribe. That's my people. Oh, that's right. The 11 of us sold Joseph. Yeah, wow. Right? There's this immediate backstory of, of the people of God being really not so great. That Joseph was down in Egypt already because of a betrayal, because of being forsaken, being sold by his brothers. So we begin with this people who are most unpromising, but who themselves have received promises. Now, look, check this out here. It's a, pro, it's a people of divine promise and a people of divine purpose. Look in verse 6 and 7. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. Okay, so this is, this is the, 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 we're heading fast forward on chronologically. We're heading to a, a future generation. Verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, if you're familiar with the language of Genesis, you'll recognize that terminology, that language of multiplying, of increasing, of becoming numerous, of being filled, the, the land of the earth being filled. It's the language of, of the first opening chapters of Genesis, where God commands uh, the human, he says, be fruitful, multiply, go and fill the earth. And so we see here this promise, a promise that, that's made to Abraham that, hey, someday your, your descendants will be numerous. That's being fulfilled. But we also see this notion of divine purpose, that in God's creation ordinance of, of procreating, of multiplying, of flourishing, we see God's people doing that, that, that somehow, some way, they've overcome the curse and they are fulfilling God's purpose for humanity. So we see a people of divine promise a people of divine purpose, and now we see them, listen to this, we see them persecuted. Look in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And there's speculation about what happened here. I mean, the, 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 the Egyptians loved to keep track of their history. How is it that they just wouldn't know Joseph? Well, it's very plausible that sometime around that time frame, the 15th, 16th century, somewhere in there, Actually, a foreign people group came in and invaded. They were called the Hyksos, or Hyksos people group. And they actually just took over, took over everything. And you guess what happens to the, who writes this, who writes history? The victors, right? And so a new, new, new king comes into power, foreigner, outsider, says, you know what, let's just, whoops, let's, um, there you go, I'm not sure what happened there, anyway. Um, but let's rewrite history. Let's, let's cover up all, all of the hieroglyphs that speak of, Joe, speaks of anything from the past, and let's, and let's write a new story. And so that's, that's, a, that's one plausible way to suggest that the new king came and he arose, new, a new, new regime, a new dynasty, and there's no memory of Joseph. And that's important because of all, all that Joseph had done for God's people. So we see here, and, so then, and then this king rises to power, and verse 9, he says, Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And there's no objections. All the Israelites, they do exactly that. And we read through verses 11 through, through 14 about the oppression, the subjugation, the persecution of God's people. 
But what's important to see is that in the face of this persecution, there's still a prevailing. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. In the verse 15, we have another strategy that's proposed. The king of Egypt then says to the Hebrew midwives, whose names are Shifra and Pua, and then you have this more specific uh, 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 agenda of infanticide. When you're helping the Hebrew women, verse 16, during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Why would they kill the boys? It makes sense, more sense to kill the girls, doesn't it? They're the ones who can produce uh, more children. They killed the boys for two reasons. One, the boys would be the ones who would be soldiers. They would be the ones who could uprise. They, would be, they, could, they could join uh, you know, a foreign threat and, 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 uh, you know, and subvert uh, the, uh, you know, the, the current political regime. But second to that, when there's only women left, what do the women have to do? They have to, you would have to marry. And whom would they marry? Egyptian men. And therefore, you'd have what? An, assimilize, an assimilation of the Israelite people group into the, into the Egyptian people. It would be a way of basically destroying the distinctness, the uniqueness of the Israelite people. And so he, select, he, 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 uh, he speaks, he, he um, uh, uh, chooses the, uh, the, to have the boys murdered. And of course, in the face of this, you have a, a prevailing, that's not only an enduring, but a defying. This is one of the most remarkable texts, uh, remarkable sections in Exodus here. You have these two women, and by the way, these are not, it's not like the, the Israelites only had two midwives. These are most likely like senior or chief midwives who are representatives of a whole crew of, uh, of, of midwives who would be doing this. And, uh, and they, they simply refused. They said in the text is that they feared God and they simply defied the king. And uh, what's so amazing is that they just simply, they, they simply do, they keep on doing what they're doing. And when called to give an account, they, they uh, who knows, it's hard to know what to make in verse 19. It says, the midwives answered the Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. That could be com- a, a complete just lie. It could be something there's truth to, whatever it is. Um, whatever, whatever it is, God approves of it. And he, he grants them uh, children of her own. Usually a midwife was a woman who either was a maid or was actually was older, had never married for some reason, or was maybe infertile themselves, wherever it may be. And, uh, and so they, they, uh, they received eventually, by God's uh, blessing, they received a family of their own. But I want you just to see here that, that this defiance is a defiance that simply, it's not, it's not grabbing a, you know, a picket, you know, or it's, it's not... You know, going marching on the streets. Uh, there's nothing wrong with marching on the streets. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But it was this defiance is simply a continuing to be faithful in the role that God had given them to do. It's a refusal to see the powers of this world as the final authority. And because of that, it's often seen by, by people as the, sort of the first recorded act of civil disobedience. As these, these women recognize that Pharaoh, for all his claims, and he did, the Pharaoh did claim to be a god, for all his claims of divinity, was not the final authority. And that's a, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, expression of the defiance of God's people in the midst of their oppression. So again, here we just see in this first chapter a, a very problematic people, right, with all kinds of sin, all kinds of uh, a failure in their lives, yet given a promise, a divine promise, that enables them to flourish. 
to flourish, to have, to have real purpose, even in the midst of persecution, so that they can, they can prevail. Um, there's, there's more we could talk about here, but I think I'll, I'll, I'll close it down at that. But again, I hope that you, as we, read, we get through Genesis, we, you begin to see this beautiful message that God's people, though oppressed, though outnumbered, actually are able to overcome. Let's pray together.